Uh, you can open up your Bible to the very first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, that's where we're going to be here in just a moment this morning. Uh, but I want to share two things briefly before we get to this text and set up this text. One, it's a very simple announcement. Uh, some of you already know this, but this evening we're going to have our monthly prayer gathering. It's, it'll be at 6 o'clock. Uh, we're going to plan to meet in room 112, unless there's an overabundance of us, which I would love. Uh, then we can move in here. Uh, we'll plan to meet in room 112. And uh, what we're planning to pray on, uh, among other things, uh, and don't let this be a demotivator for you to come, but I was thinking of a, a theme of sorts. It's not a biblical direct phrase, but the theme of Blue Christmas, uh, trying to intercede for those in our family. Uh, in our church or those in our community uh, who are dealing with difficult things, who Christmas may not feel thrilling and exciting and, and glorious to them, uh, praying for all sorts of different categories, reading texts, praying together for them, and even for those who come tonight. So if you could use prayer uh, for yourself, for your family, we'd love to even be able to pray for you. So that'll be tonight at 6, and we do provide child care uh, during that monthly prayer gathering. The second thing I wanted to note, just real briefly, uh, if you weren't here last week like me, because uh, it was Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, this may have been the first Sunday you came in where you have these little Christmas trees in the back. As you came in, we don't have those up year-round, obviously, but uh, the last few years we've done what we call a giving tree initiative, and we just try to provide you with opportunities to be generous uh, to different ministries, to different even missionaries that we've sent out from our church. And so we have a slide that has a list of these if you want to see in one shot uh, just what's at these tables, and then you could peruse them later. Uh, and one is actually out in the lobby as well. We didn't even have room to put all of them in here. Uh, but there's two that you could just give direct financial gifts. You would still either give cash or make it a check out to the church and then we'll distribute it on your behalf, 100% of it. Um, but uh, that church plant that I just prayed for in Papua New Guinea, uh, we're hoping to send even a few people from our church this upcoming summer to help repair the the glorified treehouse uh, that Chris and Evie and their family live in. It's rotted since they've been home, and we're hoping to send a few of our members, and would love to be able to have them do that not at a cost to themselves. And so if you want to donate financially to that, or there's a really neat pontoon boat that is desperately needed for their tribe because they live out in the middle of nowhere and it takes days upon days upon days to get supplies and they have to do multiple trips and things like that so we'd love to help fund that uh, or there's real low-hanging fruit simple thing here we're hoping with the uh, trailhead that we built here over the last year or two we're hoping to put kids will know what this is because you have them at a lot of your local schools a gaga ball pit uh, over on that side that could, if parents or families come with their kids uh, could have another activity maybe even for some of the older kids to, to play it. So that table's out in the lobby. And then there's several uh, tables where you could take tags that are on the tree and actually go to the store or go online and actually purchase an item, either a gift or uh, supplies for places like Fellowship Mission or Heartline, some of the, the local ministries that we serve here. Or we're even trying to round up items to take down to Camp Atterbury south of Indianapolis where there is thousands of uh, refugees from Afghanistan who've undesirably for them uh, have needed to move to the states and we're wanting to be a part of how our state cares for them tangibly and so there's a lot of things like that you could take those tags go to the store go online and bring, bring those back with you over the next few weeks so I wanted you to know those would encourage you to uh, see ways that you as an individual as a family as a group of friends might be generous uh, this Christmas all right we're going to be in Matthew 1 today we're going to start at verse 18 here in just a moment and read to the, the end of the chapter. We've been as a church going through the book of Deuteronomy up until Advent, which started last Sunday. And we're going to take this Sunday and then two more uh, to, to explore the theme of Advent as we wait for the return of Jesus. And remember the, the waiting of the old covenant people as they waited for the first coming of Jesus. And so we're taking some different texts. We're in the, Matthew 1 this week. We'll be in Matthew two next Sunday, and then the last Sunday of Advent, I'm really excited I'm going to preach from the last couple verses of the entire Bible about the return of Christ and how we wait for him to return from heaven. But we're going to be in chapter 1, verse 18, uh, but to, to ease into this, I wanted to share a brief little anecdote or story from my time when I was in college. Uh, we would do this very, uh, when I was a freshman and sophomore, we did this really kind of corny tradition that we inherited from the guys who had been part of my floor before us and what we would do it was usually in the fall 
fall, if I remember correctly, and we would pick just a fairly random Friday evening, and then we would, uh, I'll tell you what we did on that evening in a second, but we would try to build anticipation for this thing uh, during the week around campus, and it was something that our forebearers who came before us had created, they called it, He is Coming, and what we would do that week leading up to that Friday is we would uh, just take pieces of paper or posters, and we would just write the three words, he is coming, uh, real prominently, no details, no anything, uh, and we would put them around campus and try to just get people kind of scratching their heads, like, what's this about? What is this? Uh, it wouldn't usually build a ton of hype, to be honest. We just kind of went through the motions. Uh, like I said, it was a corny tradition, but we would post those all around campus, and then what we would do that Friday night at dinner time is we would pick amongst the freshmen on the floor, we would pick the scrum little guy, the most unimpressive outwardly uh, guy, and we would designate him as him, as he that was coming. And we would dress him up, try to dress him up as much as uh, poor college students could as like a celebrity or as uh, somebody of prominence, importance, and we would have other guys dress up like security guards. You're seeing the corniness of this as I describe it. We'd have other guys dress up as like quasi-security guards with sunglasses and fake earpieces and whatnot. We would try to borrow some sort of like a secret service looking type of vehicle from somebody in the little town of Upland. And we would put him in it and we would take him to our one dining hall on campus and we would have like the security guards kind of go to the door and like usher him in and take him down to this like roped off area of the, the cafeteria. And very few people are impressed. They're probably not even noticing us, but we think it's fun to do. Uh, we, we sweep him down in and then our campus, I don't know how Grace does this presently, but guys weren't usually allowed to go to girls' dorms and vice versa, but there'd be this one time on Friday night for a couple hours where guys could go to girls' dorms. And so then after dinner, when people had maybe seen him, we would like take him around to go visit these different halls uh, of the, the, the girls' dorms. And needless to say, as these girls finally saw this guy, and maybe the guys who created this long ago thought this would actually work or something, thinking they'd be impressed or uh, be intrigued by this. By the time we actually brought him, they were not interested whatsoever in this guy. They would just blow him off. He was not impressive. They would be kind of ho-hum, shoulder shrug, and it was kind of all for naught. And there's a reason the tradition kind of died out. We only did it twice of my years that I was in college. Uh, but I say that, that he is coming tradition, because the text we're going to be at today, maybe even your physical Bible, if you have one, you'll see it probably starts even on the first page of the New Testament. Uh, the entirety of the Old Testament, I think, could be summed up fairly, not comprehensively, but fairly with the three words, he is coming, right? That there had been this anticipation growing, I would say, since the Garden of Eden, when God had given this initial hint of a promise that a rescuer is going to come, and this anticipation had been growing of this he, this person, that, that they didn't know a ton about, but that someday this person was going to come. And it wasn't just posters plastered by these young idiot college guys, but these were promises of God being given over and over and over again over the centuries and over the millennia that this Savior was going to come. And I'd encourage you, if you weren't here last Sunday like me, uh, for the first Sunday of Advent to take a listen on our website or podcast feed. Jake Osborne preached a great sermon from one of those texts, Isaiah 61, that helped, was part of building the anticipation for he, for him, the one that was going to come. And God had given all these promises, put all these posters, so to speak, up. But then he had kind of went radio silent, prophecy-wise, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And when he, fin when he finally came, what we're going to read about today, the world was largely unimpressed with him. Right? They should, those girls on our campus should have been unimpressed with the guy we pretended was important, right? But when this Savior came and should have received awe and praise and worship and attention and accolades, he was greeted with kind of a shoulder shrug by most, and a sidestepping and ignoring. And uh, instead of, as we read this text today, instead of having just a ho-hum attitude in our heart, just kind of reading this, going through the motions of Christmas, then moving on to more fun things of Christmas time, I hope that as we read this text today about the birth of Jesus, the long-awaited arrival of him, that you have a hallelujah in your heart instead of just a ho-hum. Like that you actually see the, the greatness and glory of what we're about to read. 
that God the Son became a human being. So I'm going to read this text for us, Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. I like that this is a shorter text. I've been trying the last numerous times to preach whole chapters of Deuteronomy, which is a whole task. This is a glorious, simple, short text. Matthew is understated and what he says, but there's so much that we can learn. So I encourage you to be attentive. If kids are in the room or if it's helpful to grown-ups, I'd encourage you as I read this to listen for how many different names of this baby are given, because there's a few. Uh, different names that are given to describe him, that are given by angels, given by Matthew, given by his parents. And so listen for those, because that's what we're going to revisit after I read this to walk back through the text. So Matthew 1, 18 through 25 Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded the birth of Jesus this way. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. As I was preparing this, I could not just help but think of the restraint of Matthew in writing this. This is like one of the most glorious, if not the most glorious event in human history up to that point in time. And Matthew allocates a few sentences to it. I would have, I mean, people for millennia now, 2,000 years-ish, since then have been trying to write poems and songs and books, uh, to just giving sermons to try to describe the greatness of this. And Matthew suffices with just a handful of sentences. Uh, so we should pay attention to what he says, right? He includes certain things for a reason. There's a lot more he could say, but the Spirit had him say, had him write these things. And my aim in recounting Matthew's words uh, for us this morning would be this, is in following his lead and Matthew speaking on God's behalf and my speaking on behalf of God to us this morning is to help you, help us, help me see two things, the surprise and the glory of the incarnation of Jesus. The surprise of it, there were some elements that were very surprising to people, probably surprising to us today, and there's great glory in it. This was not just a baby born long ago. There was great glory involved in his birth. And so like I said, I want to point out the names that are mentioned for this baby in this text to help us walk back through it and see the surprise, see the glory, help you see the surprise, see the glory of the incarnation of Jesus. And so there's at least three names in this text that I want to, to look at and the first one is going to be the, the name, or it's kind of more a title, actually, the word Christ, right? That, if you look at the very first verse that I read, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, in this section, Matthew starts by saying, now the birth of Jesus Christ took, this pla took place this way, right? Yeah, that's how he begins, is by using the name Jesus Christ. Christ. Uh, and Christ, Jake did a good job describing this last week, so I won't rehash it a ton, but the name Christ, the title Christ, meant the anointed one. It, it was a term that had grown in prominence in the Old Testament era, and especially in the, the time between the Old Testament and the New, this title of the anointed one, the one who had been promised, the one who was been going to be anointed to be the rescuer, to be the deliverer that God's people had been waiting for. And uh, I, it's a helpful title. It's a prominent title. You see literally in the first verse of the New Testament, verse 1. You see in the verse 1 of what we read today, this name, this title, Christ, comes. And it appears over and over again. 
Christ was not Jesus' last name. I feel like I say this every Christmas. Uh, it was not like jo- Mary Christ gave birth to Jesus Christ or Joseph Christ gave birth to, or he didn't give birth, was the adoptive father of Jesus Christ. They would mostly be known by their first name, which you can see by what comes before this in Matthew 1. Matthew lists first name after first name after first name as he goes through these genealogies, of this genealogy of Jesus. But this title Christ, not a last name, but a title that was given to him is really important to note because Jesus was not the first and he wasn't the last who claimed to be Christ. There had been many who had come before him who claimed to be Christ or who others said was Christ. And there are many who came, there are still people today who think that the Christ hasn't actually come yet who try to claim that for themselves. Right? It's not as if he's the only person ever who was called so-and-so Christ or who there were claims about them that they were Christ. But I would point out to you the verse before what we read today, so if you just bump your eyes up to verse 17, I would note for you how Matthew describes Jesus there. He says, after he lists his genealogy, this backstory of Jesus and his forefathers, Matthew recorded in verse 17, he said this, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And then hear this, he says, And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew is making a claim unashamedly, unquestionably, that this baby that who grew into be a man and who was resurrected by the time that he's writing this is the Christ. He's not just a wannabe. He's not just a wishful thinker or somebody who people claim this. He truthfully actually is the Christ, the one who had been promised, the he who had been awaited, right? And he, he, Matthew's gone to great lengths. If we had time, I'd go back through the genealogy that, that he starts with at the, here at the start of the New Testament. But what he's doing there, he's trying to help us as readers, even thousands of years later, and helping his original audience to see Jesus has a rightful claim to be the Christ, even in his family tree, because God had given these promises to Abraham initially, and he had given these more narrow promises as time went on to this King David, and that there was this anticipation that a descendant of David, this knowledge that a descendant of David would be the Messiah, and Matthew is just helping us see in that text that Jesus is at least genealogically, able to be the Messiah. But more than that, he actually is the Messiah. The first couple chapters of Matthew, you're going to see, we'll see them next week also. Matthew's going to great lengths to show that Jesus is not just genealogy able to be a fulfillment of who the Messiah was going to be, but that he actually fulfills prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that have been given over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. He, and he does it, we're going to see even one today. He's trying to help us see that Jesus is the rightful, uh, he, he is the one who's been awaited. His family tree matches it. Even details of his life that have been prophesied match it. He is the Christ. And I want to note here, uh, lest there be any misunderstanding, because there are some false teachings that are going around and have gone around for centuries, if not millennia now, that at some point in his life, in his earthly life, Jesus became the Christ. There, there's some who try to teach that at his baptism, for example, that he had not been the Christ before that, but he's kind of proven his merits, kind of proven his credentials, even in his life, and then God the Father, like, turns him into the Christ or like identifies him from thence forward as the Christ. But I want to point out from today's text and the narratives of Jesus' birth that from day one, Jesus was the Christ. Like from the time he was conceived, from the time he was whatever modern terms we're going to use, a fetus, a zygote, or whatever, like he was the Christ from the very beginning. He didn't become the Christ, he was the Christ. From start to finish. There's a famous text in Luke chapter 2 about the birth of Jesus. Some of you could probably fill this in. But these angels are speaking to these shepherds, right? And they said to the shepherd, they said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, what does it say? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Right? Jesus did not have to earn the right to become the Christ. He was the Christ from day one. 
He, he was in the womb, the Christ. And there were, don't get me wrong, there were signs that were going to come. There was evidence that was going to come to confirm that he was the Messiah, to confirm that he was the Christ, but they did not make him or turn him into the Christ. They just proved what was already true. That from day one, he was the one that had been long awaited. He was the he that had been promised in the Old Testament. And just as a, word, a couple words of application from this name of Jesus, that he is the Christ. I, want to, I won't belabor this, but I want to know, even in approaching the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament, I want you to see how the Bible fits together. And to, to, to revel in the fact that our God did not just begin speaking in Matthew 1. That, that he had begun speaking in the Garden of Eden. He had begun having scripture given to us with all these promises, these infallible promises. And this story did not just begin in the womb of Mary. It did not just begin with these angelic visits to these people. It had begun in the Garden of Eden. It had begun before the Garden of Eden. And we should value as God's people this part of our Bible, not just this part of our Bible, right? That's why we're going through Deuteronomy. That's why we're taking time as a church to, to learn some of the history, and we'll keep doing that as years go by, to learn the story that has led up to the birth of Christ. Because the, the office, the idea of Christ had been long established. It wasn't just starting here in Matthew 1. There had been this anticipation building for millennia. I, I took my daughter, she had won a little, or got third place in an art contest, and we got tickets to go see Elf the Musical on Friday night over at Wagon Wheel, very fun. I had a great date to go with uh, my daughter, but I was thinking uh, as the weekend went on, there was, like in many musicals or plays, there's two acts, right? There's act one and act two, and you could drop in on act two on a musical or on a play, and you could maybe piece it together, you kind of pick up who this person is, or, or why they're doing that, or what's the best, everybody laughs and you don't know what they're laughing about exactly because you missed act one or you could watch just act one and then the story's not complete yet and you're like waiting for resolution like okay this there's like tension here it needs to be resolved and in some ways the, the bible is like act one and act two and there's there's even more to come but we can't just start act two Matt, read matthew one without really trying to understand act one, like what's come before. And so I just want to commend to you as individuals and us as a church to make sure we are studying all of God's word, that we're coming and reading all of it, trying to get the whole counsel of God. But one other thing in that stream that I want to say application-wise is this, with this title of Christ. The, the, the title of Christ, the arrival of the Christ, was long, long awaited, right? That it had been hundreds and, and thousands of years since God had given these initial promises. And the reality that this Christ finally came should be instructive to us. And even God, what feels like slowness of God should be instructive to us because we are very impatient people, aren't we? I'll at least speak for myself. I'll say first person singular. I am an impatient person. I'm guessing many of us are impatient. We live in a world that is so fast-paced, that, that, that wants things now, that wants it five minutes ago, that, that wants microwave meals. We want to drive up to a fast food place and get my food and go. We want things to be so quick. We are so impatient. We, as human beings, have learned in our day and age to not be okay with waiting, to interpret slowness as a sign that the person's not going to do what they said. And we project that even onto God. He has made promises, grand promises to us, even as his people in our era, especially and foremost that someday Christ is going to come back. And someday he's going to raise us from the dead. But we want that to be now. We want that to be last week. We want that to be last year. We want it to have already happened. But the fact that God slowly, it seems like to us, gave these promises and then ultimately fulfilled them, should be instructive to us as people who are waiting now. People who are waiting for the resolution of our problems, who are waiting for the justice of God to be established, who are waiting for the bodies that we will have someday that don't have cancer or the potential of it. We're waiting for the, the life that he has promised us as his people where there is no threat of death and suffering and disease and mistreatment. We are waiting for that. And may we see even in the long fulfillment, the, what feels slow but the ultimate fulfillment of the coming of the Christ, may we know that God will come good on his promises he's made to us. That as surely as Christ was going to come to the womb of Mary, he is going to return to this earth. And may we have patience and confident patience as we wait upon God to do that.
So that's the first name you see, is that Jesus is Jesus Christ, that he is the Christ from the time he's conceived. And he continues to be the Christ today. But there's two more names that appear in this text. The next one is the one that's actually tied right to that. I want to spend some time on. Uh, in verse 18 is the name Jesus. This is probably the one we take the most for granted. Uh, that, that we maybe don't think much about at all. We've heard it so many times. It just goes in one ear and out the other. We might not take time to even comprehend what that name actually means. Okay, and we see in this text what it means. That this angel whose speech Matthew records tells us what it means. And it is glorious to see. Uh, so I want to show you, I want to recap what the story is that Matthew uh, tells us. This true story that Matthew recounts for us. I want to recap it because in it you'll hear what this name Jesus means. So if you look at verse 18, and I know this is a familiar story, but, but listen to this. Mary and Joseph... Matthew says, are betrothed. Uh, Mary has been betrothed to Joseph. We don't have an exact parallel to that in our culture. Closest thing we have is engagement. I know some even engaged couples uh, that I can see out here in our church. That's the closest thing we have to what was true of Mary and Joseph. Theirs would have been different. It would have probably not have had the long romantic backstory behind the engagement. It was probably an arranged marriage. Joseph maybe was older. We don't know exactly, but probably older than her. But they were closest thing to us engaged, but it was closer to marriage than what our engagement is. They're spoken of as wife and husband, right? So it's kind of this weird thing, feels weird to us, but they're betrothed to each other. And Matthew's record of this birth of Jesus actually, interestingly, doesn't have a lot to do with Mary. Like it, it's, it's short, but it really centers on Joseph. Uh, and, and this engagement of this angel with Joseph, right? So verse 18 says that they had not yet come together, which I'm grateful for the euphemism that is even embedded in the text here. Uh, parents can explain if you want to to your kids what that means, but I trust the grown-ups in the room know what that means. They had not yet come together. They hadn't, verse 25 says they hadn't yet known each other. Another euphemism, uh, Old Testament one that can be helpful. Uh, they had not yet come together, but she's found to be pregnant. She's found to have a child in the womb. And I would suggest to you, the detail that Matthew lists at the end of verse 18, that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, I don't think, Matt, uh, I don't think Joseph knew that quite yet. I think he knew that she was with child, because it says he resolves to divorce her quietly, which we'll talk about in a second. I don't think he yet had been told, this is speculative, but I don't think he had yet been told by Mary that her account, that this child was not by knowing another man, by coming together with another man, but was given from God. I don't think he knows that yet, right? It, it, that's, that's something Matthew includes as a little detail for us to know as readers, but I don't think Joseph knew yet. Because he resolves, verse 19, Joseph at this point, when he knows she's pregnant and he knows he's not the father, it says, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. So it speaks of divorce, right? That's what I'm saying. It's kind of different. They're engaged, but it can be language of divorce. Joseph just knows the lady he was about to marry is pregnant, right? And he's not seeking vengeance. He's not seeking to embarrass her. But you could understand, right? I mean, try to put yourself in his shoes, especially if she hasn't even told you yet her account of how she is pregnant because she maybe thinks you wouldn't believe it, there would at least be a temptation, right, to, to say, I don't know that I can trust you. Like, I don't know. We're not fully married yet. I don't know that we can move forward in this, right? Like, I think that we can understand that temptation, that tendency. And so he, he's a just man. He, he cares about righteousness, so he, he resolves to divorce her because he doesn't even want to set up a trajectory of repeating of this in her life. But he does it, he resolves to do it quietly. He's not seeking to just expose her, embarrass her. He resolves to do it quietly, right? But then as Joseph sleeps, so verse 20, it says that as Joseph is considering this, he's not hasty to just pull the trigger on divorce, but he's considering these things. He's probably really confused. Like, that doesn't correspond with what I know of Mary. Like, how, how could this be? As he considered these things, Matthew records in verse 20 that an angel of the Lord appeared to him 
in a dream. So while he's sleeping, this angel comes to him, sent from the Lord, and speaks to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Right? And so he tells Joseph not to fear. There's fear, evidently, in Joseph's heart about entering into this, confirming this marital relationship with Mary. And, and he, the angel tells him not to fear, to, to continue forward in marriage. And he says, because this child isn't, the origin of this child isn't what you think, Joseph. Like the, the, the child that is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Right, which we'll get to that in a moment with the third name of Jesus, Emmanuel. But he says, she will bear a son, and here comes the name. He says, and you shall call his name Jesus. Right, That's the name that he says to give. That actually is the name. Like Christ was a title. This is the actual name Like that people would have called him, that they would have called him little Jesus or, or cute little Jesus that we're wrapping up. Like that's the name they would have called him, like the, the common name this angel is telling him to give this baby when it is born is the name Jesus. And, but I don't know if you've ever thought about why the name Jesus like, what, what was the significance of that? It, we're told that here in verse 21. He says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So that's, why he, that's the reason. He says, call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That could be totally lost on us. And I'm not one to just share about, like, original languages and things like this. But this is one that is very important. The name Jesus was... Uh, without getting into detail, was similar to the name Joshua or Yeshua. You may hear that sometime in Hebrew circles. That name, it meant the Lord saves. Like Yeshua, like the Lord saves. That was the same name, Jesus. It, it, it was a common name, it seems like. We don't know this for sure, but there's probably a lot of boys, little boys running around over the, the centuries that had that name, I'm guessing, uh, this name Yeshua, because they knew there's this Savior going to come, and you could imagine parents wanting to name their sons something that would remind them of that, like, God's going to someday save us. God is going to send that Savior. Remember that Savior he's promised, and every time they would have said the name Yeshua or Jesus and called that little boy that, it would have been a reminder to them that a Savior is going to come, right? It meant the Lord saved. But notice why the angel tells Joseph to name this baby Jesus. This is so important, but we can miss it. He says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All right, there had been a bunch of people, I think, who had named their little sons Yeshua, named them Jesus over the centuries because they believed and hoped that God would save them, that, that God would save them. This angel tells Joseph, name this kid this because this baby, this kid, this human being is going to be the one who saves. Not just to build anticipation that someday some other savior will come, but singular. He is going to be the one who saves his people from their sins. That is a far more specific promise that this child is the rescuer. This child is the one who is going to do that work. He is going to be the savior. And I so appreciate that he says and makes it very clear from this first word of Joseph that this baby who's going to grow to become a man is going to do this himself. It's not, there was this anticipation growing in this time that this Messiah, this Christ, was going to be this, yes, this one figure, but who would kind of like lead a revolution, who, who would get this band of followers, and then who would go to Jerusalem, maybe go even beyond that, and kind of stick it to the people who had the, the Jews under their thumb. That, that he was, yeah, going to be the leader, but he's going to rise up a militia. He's going to rise up a following. And he's either going to be super eloquent or very strong or very persuasive politically. And they knew there would be this figurehead, but they believed that there would need to be this like uprising of all of God's people that he would lead, right? But when, he, when this angel comes to Joseph and tells him about this baby, he says, he, like he himself, by himself, is going to save God's people from their sins. He's not just going to like somehow get a band of people to, to go to Jerusalem and lead an uprising. He is going to do it by himself. 
Singular. He is going to save his people from their sins. And the way that we know that this came true is 20-some chapters later in the account of Matthew that Matthew gives of the life of Jesus. The way that this baby, this human being, would save his people from their sins was not by leading an uprising. It wasn't by getting a band of people around himself and going in force to Jerusalem. It was the exact opposite of that. It was by laying his life down. It was by, instead of with all the authority that he possessed and every right he had to go to any throne on any part of the earth and claim it for himself, instead he went to a cross that he allowed the sins of his people, the sins of many of us, to be counted to him, though he had been innocent, though he deserved worship, though he deserved reward, though he deserved praise from human beings and reward from the Heavenly Father. He took our sin upon himself. And the way that he saved us, the way he saved us from our sins was by laying his life down. Not by taking other people's lives, not by tearing down the rulers of this world, but by laying his life down and being punished by God the Father in our place. He did that. He himself, one human being, saved his people from their sins by his selfless act of sacrifice upon the cross. And that is a glorious thing that we have foreshadowed here, that this baby by himself, all by his lonesome, was going to save his people from their sins. And the simple word of application that I want to use from that name of Jesus this morning is to call each of us in this room, I don't care if you are five or if you are 90, like I want you today, if you have never before, I want you to see Jesus as what his name actually means, that he is the Savior and that he can be your Savior. Like you need rescued from your sins. Whether you realize it or not, you need rescue. And we like to think that we can manufacture that ourselves. We like to think that we can gain that from God by doing good things, by taking a hundred tags off these trees or coming to church every Sunday or being a good dad or being a great daughter or whatever. Like we, we like to think that we can save ourselves. But there is one Savior in all of history, all of humanity, there is one Savior and it is not you, and it is not me, and it is not your mom, and it is not any preacher on the face of this earth. It is Jesus, the one who went into the womb of Mary and then who went to the cross and who has been raised now and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he can be your savior. He can give you forgiveness. He can give you freedom for your sins if you will simply turn to him in a biblical word called repentance, that you're saying, I am sorry for rebelling. I'm sorry for living contrary to you. Please forgive me. Like, I know that you died for me, Christ. Like, please forgive me. And if you come repentant and truly casting yourself upon Christ, he is your savior. He is the one who can deliver and will deliver you from your sins and will raise you up to be with him for all eternity. Your greatest need is not a nice family Christmas. It's not a new job. It's not a spouse. It's not a baby. It's not health. It is not any of those things. Your greatest need is the forgiveness of your sins and the only way you can receive that and that you can receive now is through the work of this baby who became a man, Jesus Christ. And so call upon him today. And if that's confusing to you, talk to me. Talk to whoever you came with. Talk to the people around you after service. May you see him as Jesus the one who saves. So that's the second name, is Jesus. The last name that we see in this text is Emmanuel. And this is uh, perhaps uh, the most foreign or, or unique amongst these. We call him Jesus Christ often. We don't often call him Emmanuel. But I want to share for a few moments about this title, Emmanuel. Because again, this wasn't an actual like name name, like we think of names. I don't think when, when Mary held him, she was like, oh, like look, cute little Emmanuel or Joseph calls him Manny or something like that like they they called him Jesus most typically but you see the angel's words end at verse 21 right the angel's words to Joseph end at the end of verse 21 then Matthew starts in narrator voice again in verse 22 and he, he says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet and then he quotes from what we call Isaiah chapter 7, uh, that, Behold, the virgin shall conceive 
and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then he tells them, I don't have time to get into all the language of this, that that name Emmanuel means God with us. Basic background, this is not a sermon on Isaiah chapter 7. We could do that another time, but Matthew quotes it here. It would have been a text from 700 years before Jesus was born, before this baby had been conceived. There had been this prophet, Isaiah, who in this situation with this king of Israel named King Ahaz, where King Ahaz was struggling with faith and even with doubt, it seems, God had uh, told, or through Isaiah, God had asked King Ahaz, like, basically, like, I'll give you any sign you want. Like, what do you want me, like, what do you want me to do? And King Ahaz uh, kind of fumbles around with it, and Isaiah basically says, fine, like, God's going to decide what the sign is. Like, he's going to give you a sign. And then he gives him this sign to anticipate that someday is going to show once and for all, unquestionably, that God rescues, like God is for his people. God comes good on what he says. And the sign that Isaiah had told King Ahaz 700 years before and that had been written down and people had read and read and read and read that Joseph would have been familiar with was this, that a virgin will conceive and bear a son. That is a supernatural miracle, right? We, we used the euphemisms earlier. We know how babies come about, right? Not from storks. That is by knowing each other or by coming together, right? God is saying every other human being before and since is conceived that way. I'm going to do something unquestionably miraculous. I'm going to have a virgin someday conceive and bear a son without a man involved. And when she bears a son, you will call his name they will call his name Emmanuel. And that name meant God with us. God with us is what Emmanuel means. And Matthew here, in quoting this prophecy and saying, this is fulfilling, this conception of this baby in the womb of this teenage Jewish girl is fulfilling what Isaiah had promised 700 years ago. By Matthew drawing attention to that, he is saying, Jesus is Emmanuel. Like Jesus is the one, the one who he had just told Joseph was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by some other dude, but by the Holy Spirit is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And this is, this is I don't even know, I was trying to think how to articulate how mind-bending and glorious this is, that a baby was conceived in the womb of a virgin. This is mind-bending and glorious because Matthew is wanting to tell us more than just that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the long-awaited one, and wanting to tell us more than just he is Jesus, the one who would save. He's adding this whole other level of who this person is that is crazy. He is wanting us to see, wanting us right at the beginning of his story of Jesus to see that this baby is God. Like that this baby is divine. He is not just some mere human conceived in a special way, going to do special things. He is God with us. God with us. This, this is where I'm talking about there was a great surprise that came with the birth of Jesus. Because they may have, when they heard that prophecy, thought, I don't know what that's going to look like, that a virgin's going to somehow uh, have, a, have a baby, but he's going to be a full human just kind of like us. Matthew is saying, no. Like when God said They'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Does that mean actually God with us? Like not in some metaphorical sense, not in some like emotional, I'm with you guys in spirit type of way, but literally God with us. Like God in the flesh. This would have been, I think, surprising, stunning to people, confusing to people. It still is, I think, even today. It is mind-bending to think. That amongst the three persons of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that that second person of the Trinity, who had always existed, who had been the, what the, really in many ways the agent by which this entire universe was created, entered into the womb of a, what would feel like to people like a random teenage Jewish girl, would become like a one-cell organism, that, that would slowly grow, that didn't even have a pulse at the beginning, right? That didn't have brain waves at the beginning. It, may, it seriously, like, I thought many times this week, this, 
imagining, knowing that God the Son became a human, it makes my brain hurt to think about, but it makes my heart swell to think about. I cannot articulate to you exactly how it all works. Uh, I don't think we're intended to. But the creator of the universe had an umbilical cord, right? Had a mother like who, who had to feed him. The one who, as part of the Trinity, breathed life into Adam in the garden was like breathing amniotic fluid, right? It's crazy. Like, it is so mind-bending to think that our creator would become one of us. And not just come poof like Adam did, like a full-grown adult, magically on the scene, but come as an infant, come as a pre-infant, come as one cell conceived in the womb of Mary. This is glorious, surprising, mind-bending, heart-swelling to think about. But this is good news to us. I hope that this can be an encouragement. This name, Emmanuel, God with us, can be an encouragement because what the incarnation, the taking on of flesh of God the Son tells us is that God pursues those he could punish. Like God had sent Adam and Eve out of the garden. He had sent them away from his presence. He had disciplined his people Israel by sending them out of the promised land. He, that could have been God's orientation, just continue to send sinners away, 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 away. But in the incarnation of Jesus, we have the clearest display of God pursuing us, God coming to us uh, in ways that we do not deserve. He, like we read this morning, he was sent to save, not to condemn. He was sent to the womb of Mary not just to become a conqueror, one who would crush, but one who would first save. He will return someday to judge the enemies, but first he came to save his people. This also, this incarnation, this God becoming human, I was thinking a lot about this this week, it should help us see in ourselves and in every other human being that we interact with in this life, it should help us see the dignity and value of human beings. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but think about this. God the Son became, literally became a human being without ceasing to be God. Have you ever thought about that before? Like, he could become one of us without giving up his godness. That doesn't mean we are gods, right? But it means we have the image of God so deeply imprinted upon us that God the Son could become one of us without ceasing to be what he already was, right? That should make us see about ourselves and see in the people that we interact with at work and in our families and our neighborhoods that, that these people are image bearers of God. They have great value. I have great value and dignity. It has been marred by sin. We are rebels at heart against him, but there is great value and dignity in every human being, and that is displayed by the incarnation of Jesus, that he became a human being. But I hope also that this incarnation of Jesus, this taking on of flesh, can be an encouragement for us as we think this, and remember this, that Jesus didn't just become a human being for a little while, and then go back to his godness, right? When he, be when he entered the womb of Mary, he became a human being once and for all. Uh, he is a human being right now, right? He, there is a human being. I say this often. I'll try to remind you of it often, remind myself of it often. There is a resurrected human being on the throne of heaven right this second as we speak. Like he is still a human being. Who has and that should give us great comfort, that should give us great encouragement that we don't have just a distant God on the throne of heaven ruling over all, but there is a human being who knows what it's like to be an infant, who knows what it's like to have friends, who knows what it's like to have probably a parent pass away, who knows what it's like to have mistreatment, who knows what it's like to be sick, who knows what it's like to have a friend die, who knows what it's like to cry and to weep, who knows what human weakness is like. We have a Savior in heaven right now who sympathizes with us, who's not just ruling over all in some cold, distant way, but cares for us, knows what our experience is like, who knows what temptation is like. 
who can deliver us, who, can, who, who rules over all the universe on our behalf, who prays for us, like who intercedes for us, who sympathizes with us. Jesus did not just become a human being for a little while and then give up his Emmanuel-ness. He is still to this day Emmanuel, God with us by his Holy Spirit. Right? He, he is with us in true form, even better form now by his Holy Spirit. And so my prayer this morning, and as we go about this Advent season, for myself, for my family, for our church family, for any of you that are hearing this, my hope and prayer is that this Christmas we would not just see the birth of Christ and respond with a shoulder shrug or be unimpressed, be unmoved, be uh, content to just watch our Christmas movies and eat our Christmas cookies and see our Christmas lights and go to our Christmas gatherings, but that we would see the surprise and the glory that God the Son became one of us. That he came, he was the Christ, he was the Savior, he is the Christ, he is the Savior, and he is God with us. And so instead of ho-hums, I want us to be have hallelujahs on our lips, right? And hallelujahs in our hearts. Matthew took a couple sentences to describe the birth of Jesus. He doesn't even actually ever say in a sentence, and Jesus was born. It's kind of like, until she had given birth, like, it, but this is the mo one of the most glorious things in all of human history, and we cannot be, I would say this, we cannot be over-impressed with Jesus. We're often under-impressed with Jesus. You cannot be over-impressed with Jesus. So seek this Christmas to grow your appreciation for him. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing one more song. Let's pray together. And you can stand while we pray. Why don't we stand together? Father in heaven, we come to you as your people gathered to worship you, to meet with you. God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful even for the part of it that we read this morning. God, may we never just become familiar with that story and let the glory and surprise of it be lost on us. I pray that there would be childlike wonder, not just with lights and with snacks and songs and things like that, as, as wonderful as those things may be. I pray that we would be taken, that we would be, uh, just have a wonder about the birth of your son Jesus, the fact that you sent him, your very son, that you sent him to live among us and ultimately to die for us and be raised for us. May we be smitten with him. May we be in awe of him. May we have wonder swell up in our hearts. And God, I pray for those in the room this morning who do not know him as their savior, who do not know you as their father. May that change today. May they cry out to you for forgiveness and may you grant it. Even now as we sing, may you be honored and may our hearts be sincere and joyful as we sing. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.